Okay, Ephesians 1, 3 through 23. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and, the, and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. All in all is uh, an appropriate way to end that passage, the word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. As I was preparing for this sermon, um, there, there are a number of themes in there. You've heard a number of words that were repeated, uh, and I, I wanted to address those, and I was grabbing a phrase here, and I said, let me drop this in here and this in here, and somewhere around the middle of the afternoon yesterday, I looked and I said, you know what, I think, I think we need to put this on pause, because I think there's something we need to talk about. And um, so we will get to Paul's prayer and the foundation of Paul's prayer in two weeks. I'm off next week. Uh, Scott has a great sermon planned for next Sunday. Uh, I'll be back the following Sunday. So uh, this is actually going to be the first half of a two-part sermon. But I want to talk to you this morning about some difficult subjects. And, and I'll tell you something. I, I, I struggled with uh, whether or not to bring this. I struggled with how to bring it. Um, and ultimately, as I prayed through yesterday afternoon, I remembered that, uh, you know, we've been together now for over 15 years. Um, it's a church that has a high view of God's word. Um, and our commitment to you has been every step of the way. Scott has the same commitment, and the elders do, that we will preach the hard sections when we get to them. We won't, we won't skip over them. And I believe that you have a high view of God's word, and I believe that you're ready for what I have to share with you this morning. It's a difficult lesson. Um, we, there, there's, some, uh, there's some very difficult things in here, uh, but let me just give you what we're going to do. Today, we're going to answer this question, and I promise you that we're going to give you an answer. Is God sovereign, or do we have free will? And by the end, by the end of the next three hours, <laughs> for those of you who remain, I'll give you an answer to this question. Now, this comes out of this beginning of the book of Ephesians. And Ephesians is a short book. It's got a lot in it. 
uh, a lot of biblical scholars would call Ephesians the Switzerland of the Bible. It is small, but it is packed with a lot of power and influence. And it's all about power. It's about God's power. And it's about identity, our identity. Uh, it is the Bible's perhaps most thorough description of what life is like apart from Christ and what life should be like in union with Christ at the same time. There is a key verse that kind of brings everything together for Ephesians. It's in chapter 5. It is verse 8, and it says this, at, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children in the light. It talks about transformation. It talks about the evidence of the gospel rising up in us. Uh, and if, if you read everything up to chapter 5, you'll see that it, it, their, their relationship with God, relationship with Jesus Christ, their relationship in there, how all this impacts us. So the first half or so of the book speaks of the power behind that transformation. The second half or so of the book speaks of what that transformation should look like. In other words, God's power has entered our lives, and what, what impact should that have on us? What should that look like as we walk through our day-to-day -day relationships, those things that we do, those, those things that we're involved in? So, in other words, that, that second half uh, is about our identity. Now, we, we need, need to be careful with this because uh, that's a phrase that floats around the modern church pretty easily, your identity in Christ, and uh, we, it, that's not, we, this is not about some spiritual odyssey to find out who we are. It's not about some, some journey of self-discovery. It is about our identity in Christ, who we are in union with Jesus Christ. The focus is on Jesus Christ, not on us. So, uh, the, the focus is who we are in Christ, our identity. We, we can't have the identity without the power. And, and that's why Ephesians has all this packed in here. So we, we can't find our identity in Christ without the transformational power of the Holy Spirit and God and the, the work of the Trinity working itself out in our lives. So the goal of the book is not to establish who we are in Christ, but to put on display the power of God in transforming us. It's a very crucial nuance that we need to get from this, but it's just like every other book in the Bible, it's not about us, it's about God. It's always about God. He's always the focus of this. We get wrapped up in the blessing of being transformed. We get wrapped up in the blessing of God bringing glory to himself by redeeming his children. So, we, we could say that the first half of the book says that God is all-powerful. And the second half of the book says, so this is how it should look in us. Now, nowhere is all of this more evident in the book of, of Ephesians uh, than in this first chapter, in this passage we have today. So the, the opening prayer in, in, in this is, is, uh, reveals two biblical truths, two profound truths, and we're going to explore them today. Here they are. They, they are seemingly contradictory, uh, but both are fully supported by the full context of Scripture. Number one, God is absolutely sovereign. God is absolutely sovereign. Now, we're going to put a word to this that, that is going to it's going to strike terror in the hearts of some of you, but we got to talk about it, okay? We're talking about sovereign election. Sovereign election. So the first truth we're talking about is God is totally sovereign, uh, but not just in the area of election for salvation, but in the area of sovereign over everything. And I'm going to show you how, how far that goes with Scripture. Now, the second truth that we're going to explore is that human beings are responsible for their decisions and for the way they behave. So we're going to talk about the sovereignty of God and human responsibility. And uh, so I want to define these things so that we understand what we're talking about. When we talk about God's sovereignty, we talk about him sitting in authority over everything, over everything. And we had an interesting moment in Sunday school a couple weeks ago, and uh, we started talking about God being omnipresent. Who knows what God omnipresence is? God is where? He's everywhere, okay? Now, we believe that, amen? That means God is present in hell. 
Think about it for a second. I mean, there's nothing in creation where God is not present. And this is a little bit of a challenge for some of us because, well, what would God be doing in hell? Well, he created it. It's his. It's there for his purposes. So God is everywhere. That'll have an impact on your private life if you understand how far it goes. Because what came up in Sunday school is there's, you know, privacy is a myth. There's no such thing as privacy. Why? Because God is everywhere. You think you have secrets? You don't. You think that there are things you can hide from God? It's not happening. Why? Because he's everywhere. Okay, so not only is he everywhere, but he has sovereign authority over everywhere and everything. So when we talk about God's sovereignty, we're talking about total, ultimate, sovereign authority and control over everything. Now, we all acknowledge that, we, and, and we all profess that, but we're going to explore that this morning and see how far that goes. So, now the other thing is human responsibility. Um, we know what sovereignty is now. Human responsibility means that you and I are responsible for every decision that we make and every action that we take. We are accountable for the things that we do. Uh, so, those two things, those two truths are in this passage. Uh, I'm calling today, uh, the sermon today, Sovereign with a question mark. Uh, this will be part one of that sermon. Uh, again, we'll get, we'll get to uh, part two in two weeks. Uh, but let's, let's just be honest with each other and admit that these two concepts can cause a lot of tension. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, churches have been in division over this. There are there are whole denominations that are in division over this. This denomination thinks that. That denomination thinks this over here. Uh, we're constantly debating this whole idea of election and free will. Uh, people get angry over it. We start talking about it. Blood pressure rises. People get red in the face. The, the level of, of oratory begins to, to increase. And, and so we, and we, we get knots in our stomach. It, it creates tension from time to time. And if we're not careful, uh, we can allow that tension to, to interfere with the unity we have in Jesus Christ. Uh, but if we are careful, and if we look at the Scriptures close enough, what we're going to find out is that both of these things are true. Both of them are taught by Scripture. And, and the problem is this. They're both taught by Scripture, but when we struggle, we struggle over the fact that we feel that we have to embrace one of these truths, and when we do that, we will diminish the other truth. And I hear it all the time. I went through it myself when I had to deal with these issues. I go, well, you know what? I just don't believe that. Well, it says it right here. I'm sorry, I don't believe it. I believe this over here. And I try to rationalize in my mind how this works. Well, God must make sense. God must have some kind of reason that goes here. And if it doesn't make sense to me, then, then I'll make it make sense. So I've decided to believe this. And in order to believe this and believe that that's the only way to do it, now I've got to believe that the other one's wrong. So that's where our struggle is in, in embracing one of these viewpoints to diminish the other. So let's take a look at these truths. Uh, the, uh, let's look at God's sovereignty first. Proverbs shows God to be utterly, totally sovereign. Okay, and I'll tell you how far it goes. It shows that God, God is sovereign over the role of dice. Uh, Proverbs 16, verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but it is every decision is from the Lord. Now, we see this in Scripture from time to time. Uh, they'll cast lots and, and turn to the Lord and go, what do we do? I mean, we saw it when Judas uh, killed himself. They had to replace his position amongst the 12. And how did they decide? They got a bunch of guys together and they cast lots. Well, that, that kind of defies our sense of reason, doesn't it? Well, how can you do that? That's kind of gambling, you know? Doesn't that leave it up to chance? That's not what they thought. They thought, we're not leaving it up to chance at all. We're trusting God to be involved in the role of this dice. These were little bits of bone with, with marks on them. For all intents and purposes, we would look at them and call them dice. So they believed that God was so sovereign that God would use that roll of dice to show them what man they would include among the 12. Okay, so that's, that's kind of interesting. Uh, 
What does that mean to us today? Just think about it. We, we go sometimes, not me, of course, and gamble, don't we? I mean, isn't that, what, isn't that the first thing you think about when you think about dice? You know, and we think it's a game of chance, don't we? Odds are stacked against you, blah, 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 all, the, you know, all this sort of thing. And, and the writer of Proverbs said it's not a game of chance at all. God is involved in that. I'm not putting my money up there so that I might win some other money. I'm putting my money up there to say, God, do with this what you will. So there is no chance. You know, so God is not sitting in heaven and going, gosh, he just put a lot of money on a roulette wheel. I hope it comes out red. I'd like to bless him. We'll see how this turns out. So we got to think these things through. As, as we see that God is over every facet of life. He's over the affairs of the wicked. Uh, Pro- Proverbs 16, verse 4. The Lord, listen to this. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Now, the way we process the whole wicked thing is, well, okay, that guy's evil. He's not doing God's will. You know, God's not involved in that. Uh, again, as if God is sitting in heaven going, well, I don't know. That guy turned out bad. I wish it would have been differently. Okay? It says here, God has made everything for his purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. God is sovereign over our daily affairs. Proverbs sixteen nine: The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. It is prudent to have a plan. It is not prudent to grip so tightly to that plan that when the Lord begins to change things, you abandon the Lord's will and try to follow the plan that you made. Now, we, we did a handout today. If you didn't get that handout, I want you to raise your hand. Okay, can I get one of the deacons? To, we've got a few people down here. And, and let me tell you why this is important. Um, I'm throwing a lot at you. It's going to come at you fast. And I will guarantee you that a lot of this you're going to have to think about. What I'd like you to do is, this, is the, this handout is going to give you all of the passages we're talking about today. I'd like you to go home and process them. Look at them in context. And see, check me on this. See if I'm not preaching these things in context the way that the, the uh, author applies them. And work through these things on your own. It's, it took me a number of years to get where I am today on this. And hopefully this handout will help you some on that. So God's sovereign over our daily prayers, we're, uh, our daily affairs. We're, we're, we're supposed to make a, a plan. We're, we're, we're prudent. We're diligent to do that. But God is going to have his way. Uh, we see God's sovereignty in Psalm 115. Uh, verse 2 says, what should the nation say? Where is their God? And, and the answer is in verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Okay, now this is pretty interesting. So that means that God does everything that satisfies him. And God does nothing that doesn't please him. That means that God is never in heaven going, I wish that hadn't happened. He's never in heaven saying, oh, that didn't work out the way I thought it would work out. Let me resort to the next thing. God is never in heaven looking down and saying, Kelly, I thought you were going to do that. Now I'm going to have to change things. Okay? The things that please God are the things that he does, and everything he does pleases him. Amen. Amen. Jesus taught God's sovereignty very frequently. In Matthew 6, 26, he tells us that if the birds are fed, it's because God feeds them. It's not just the fact that the birds are God is aware of the birds and as God is caring for them and providing the food that they need to sustain themselves. In Matthew 6.30, we find out that the flowers and the grass are not only created by God, but they're sustained by God. God causes them to grow. He sends the water. He sends the nutrients. He's in control of every facet of what happens with the grass. God doesn't just create these plants and then step away and say, let me see what's going to happen with them. He's involved in everything involved in their lives, just like he is in ours. The prophets spoke of God's sovereignty frequently. Jeremiah uh, in in chapter 10, verse 23 says, I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that is not in man who walks to direct his steps. And the inference is that God is the one who directs his steps. We saw the same thing in Proverbs. 
And we see that his sovereignty knows no limits, that he's sovereign over all creation. In Psalm 135, starting in verse 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth and in seas and all the deeps. Now, we need to think about that for a second. God does everything he pleases where? In heaven, in earth, on the seas, and the deep. That's pretty much everywhere, isn't it? I mean, as far as a Jewish perspective on then, there were no other places, and we should be thinking along the same lines. God is sovereign over everything. God is sovereign, watch this, over the weather. Next verse in 135, verse 7. He is, is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain, and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Every time there's a major storm, somebody goes on the news, writes something, where was God? I'll tell you where God was. He's sitting on the throne where he always is. Okay? And not only is he sovereign over the storm, he sends the wind. There's no wind out there that he hasn't sent. God is not sending God. But gee, there's a tropical depression over the Caribbean. I hope it doesn't turn into a hurricane. Okay? So, now, now look, this, this is where things start getting tough. Because we look at it and we see the devastation that a hurricane can bring. We've watched it happen in Japan, just happened in North Carolina and South Carolina. We see property being ruined. We see people die. And we look and we go, well, God couldn't possibly be in that. People died. Yes, they did. Some of them were Christians. Yes, they were. And you know what? We grieve over that. It's painful to watch. It's painful to watch children drown in something like that. But I've got to tell you something. If they were Christians, they went home. They went home. Okay? So, yeah, we grieve for missing them. It hurts when we see that they're gone. But they're not suffering. They're in the presence of the Lord. If they have rejected Jesus Christ, they didn't go home. See how God has his way? I don't want to, I, I don't want to go down that path that every storm is God's judgment. You know, we, we can't look at it that way. But every storm somehow works within the will of God. Every storm somehow works with God to bring his glory and demonstrate his sovereign authority over everything. Sovereign over the weather, he's sovereign over the ungodly. Now, we also like to believe that if you don't believe in God, I'll tell you, maybe not us as believers, but those who don't believe in God think they're exempt from him. You know what? That's not my God. And I want to go, not right now, he's not. But he will be. (laughs) Okay, listen to this. Uh, Psalm 135, verse 8. He it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast, who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants. God exacted judgment on those who didn't believe in them. They believed in other gods. Okay, well, maybe we know that. Check this one out. God is sovereign over the political landscape. Boy, here's a lesson for us to learn, brothers and sisters. God is sovereign over the political landscape. Again, Psalm 135, starting with verse 10. Who struck down many nations, this is God, and killed mighty kings, Sihon, uh, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan. I, I, I think this guy's got the neatest name in the Bible. I am Og. <laughs> yeah, I just, I, I wish somebody would have named me Og. Uh, it didn't do him any good because God struck him down. And all the kingdoms of Canaan and struck these kings down in verse 12 and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people Israel. God's sovereign over the political landscape. He's even sovereign over the borders of nations. You know, we think we have these treaties and these meetings and all that. And we go, okay, the, the border's going to be here. We're going to establish this. We're going to establish this government over here. Look what God has to say about this in Acts 17, 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods how long the government will last, and the boundaries of their dwelling place. God's in charge of your property flat. God established the border between Canada and the United States and Mexico and the United States. 
God is in charge of the borders. He's sovereign over them. And so he's even sovereign over things that, that maybe don't make much sense to us, okay? He is in some mysterious way that allows him to be untainted. He is by any evil. He reigns supreme over things like manslaughter. Uh, Exodus 21, 12, and 13. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place which you may flee. He's sovereign over our family trials. Ruth, chapter 1, verse 13. This is Naomi. Would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. He's sovereign in a microcosm in our family, in our personal lives. He's sovereign in a national disaster. Isaiah 45, 6 and 7. That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I Listen to this. I form light and darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. NIV says disaster. I am the Lord who I am the Lord who does all these things. Have you ever thought about the Lord creating calamity? Does that bend your mind a little bit? Is that a little bit hard to accept? Everything is a shambles. My life is falling apart. Nothing's going right. God's like, you know what? I gave you that. What kind of gift is that? Usually it's to show us that we need to depend on him. But look, look what he said. I create lightness and darkness. I don't know how that works. Because scripture tells me there's no darkness in God, but he says he created the darkness. He says, I create calamity. This is hard stuff. He's sovereign over our private grief. Lamentations 3, 31. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. And again in verse 37 and 38. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Now I hope, I hope some of you are challenged right now because we all confess that God is sovereign, but do we really believe that he's sovereign over the bad? Do we really believe that he's sovereign over the calamity? Is he sovereign over the hurricane, whatever its name is? Here's a challenge for some. God is sovereign over sin. 1 Kings 22, 21 through 23. Listen to this. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, God said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Okay, now if we just leave it there, we can go, okay, well, that was a lying spirit, but you know, God's not really involved in it. He just allowed it to happen. Except verse 23 says, Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. Now those are against people that oppose God. Happens to David. 2 Samuel 24.1 Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he incited David against them saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So God remains sovereign over all these difficult things, over everything in creation. There's no random happening. There's nothing beyond his authority. There's nothing outside of his plan. But look, let me show you something. Because God's sovereignty is very clearly displayed in Scripture, it never, ever nullifies human responsibility. Go right back to David's case, okay? 
God incites David to do this count. Okay? So, you know, when I read that, I go, oh, he made David sin. Okay? But here's, here's what happens when, when the sin is uncovered. Uh, 2 Samuel 24.10. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Let me tell you what just happened there. God was after something in David's heart. And it was pride. It, It was a little bit of arrogance. So God didn't make David sin. He He gave David the opportunity to reveal his pride. Do you see what happened? God said, David, there's something we need to deal with in here. I think there's some pride. Uh, Why didn't you go out and number the army? And and so every time they number the army, well, almost every time they number the army in the Old Testament, it's because they want to see how powerful they are. It's kind of self-centered. David does it and realizes he's done something wrong. God didn't make David's heart evil David's heart was evil in that area. And God revealed it. And if you, if you look at David's life, if you look at his walk, what it results in is David repenting. David getting down on his knees and saying, oh, I have sinned. David didn't say, you know what? You made me sin. This is your fault. You made me this way. David said, I didn't even know that was in me. Father, forgive me. And the net result is David's sin is uncovered and David is drawn closer to the Father. So we have to see that in perspective. We have to see it in the context of everything that's going on. It's not just God over there pulling strings and making puppets move around. It's God trying to refine his people and putting the people that oppose him to condemnation. Now, even if, if we understand that, it would be very easy for us to see God sitting on the throne and going, ha, 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 I got him again. You can see him just taking glee and, boy, I set this trap and, and she walked into it. And, and now you're going to pay for this. But that's not the case either. God grieves over these things. He takes no pleasure in the death or, or the punishment of the wicked. Isaiah 30, 18. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you rather than judgment. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. That's kind of clear. Later on, take a look at Isaiah 65, 2, and take another look at Lamentations 3, 31, and see how the Lord reveals his grief over the stumbles of people. Uh, But for something more exact, we could take a look at Ezekiel 18, 30, Therefore, God says, I will judge you, O house of Israel. Everyone according to his ways declares the Lord of God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For, in verse 32, for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. You're not a mean God. He's not a God who lacks compassion. He's not a God who's trying to trick us. Not a God who's trying to trap us into doing something that we didn't think we were going to do. We see the same thing again in Ezekiel 33, 11. You can take a look there. So what we see from this is that God holds men responsible for their actions, but takes no joy in seeing them suffer the consequences of their actions. Human responsibility is actually one of the major threads that runs throughout the entire Bible. We can't ignore it. We see, we see how the vast scope of that human responsibility applies to everything, in particular in the gospel and the nature of the gospel itself. We look at John 3.16, the one that we're all familiar with. It's there, for God so loved the world, God acted sovereignly, that he gave his only son, acted sovereignly, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We see some participation. We see a response to the message of the cross of Christ. We see the response is required. 
Paul talks about it in Romans 10, starting with verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you actively make your mouth work and say that he is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Now, believe in your heart part is surrender to him. Willful, conscious, surrender to him. We participate in this. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Participation in our salvation. A response to the gospel. We need to repent. We need to be contrite. Our heart needs to be broken over our sin. So understand that, you know, there are a lot more scriptures we could cover, but understand that human responsibility, a response to the gospel, is a thread that runs through the entire Bible, but it never, never once abrogates, never once nullifies the sovereignty of God. They work hand in hand. Romans 9.18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and hardens whomever he wills, which in itself is a quote from Exodus 33, Old Testament and New Testament. So we see sovereignty. We see human responsibility. Sometimes in a passage, we see both simultaneously. Genesis 50, starting with verse 19, but Joseph said to them, do not fear for I, am I in the place of God? Am I where God put me? As for you, you meant evil against me. They devised evil against him. They planned evil against him. They participated in evil against him. They made a decision to be evil to their brother. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. They had this plan. They put it into action. They made it work. God took their plan, their evil plan, and brought good out of it. He took their decision and made something beautiful happen. The brothers intended evil. God took the same actions and intends it for good. We see in Isaiah chapter 10, starting with verse 5. This is a long passage, but it, I, I just think it's beautiful. Stick with me for a second. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and cease plunder. He's talking about Assyria. He commands them. And to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Now, the ones they're treading, the one they're coming against, is Israel, God's children. Verse 7, but he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and cut off nations, not a few. For he says, are not my commanders all kings? Is not Cano like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdom of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? So you can see the arrogance of the king of Assyria. And then in verse 12 it says, When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, By the strength of my hand I've done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding, I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand was found like a nest the wealth of the peoples. And as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened their mouth or chirped, says the king of Assyria. Verse 15, shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood? It's really saying, God's really saying, do you think the king of Assyria is in control here? You think he's manipulating me? Verse 16, Therefore the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire, and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. 
the glory of his forest and his fruitful land, the Lord will destroy both soul and body. And it will be as when a sick man wastes away, the remnant of the trees of his forest, the king of Assyria, will be so few that a child can write them down. Now let me give you a synopsis of what just happened here. It's easy. God is going to discipline Israel for their rebellion against him by sending the Assyrians against them, and then God will condemn and judge the Assyrians for opposing his people. Well, that's not fair. You know, the Assyrians were a brutal race. They had evil hearts. God just allowed them to become victims of their own rebellion against him. And meanwhile, while they were doing that, he used them to refine his own people. Jesus says in John 6, verse 37, I mean, we, we, we see that human responsibility and, and God's sovereign election here at the same time. All that the Father gives me will come to me. All the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. All the Father gives me will come, and they will participate. They will come. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. God gives the Son for his own glory. The people who are given look to the Son. Sovereign election, free will. And, and see, we look at that and we say, you know, it's just got to be one or the other. But the scripture clearly says that it's both. It's both. We have a rough time with it. Uh, listen to this in Philippians 2, starting with verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, that's pretty clear. I like that. Okay, that kind of moves the needle over towards the free will thing, doesn't it? Okay, next verse. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God works in your will for his good pleasure. Paul tells believers, work out your salvation because God is working in your will and in his actions to save them, all done for his good pleasure. Acts 18, 9 and 10. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Here we are, preach the gospel. Don't be afraid. Go out and preach my word to these people. Why? Verse 10. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. God has many in the city who haven't even heard the gospel yet. And he knows who they are. Paul has to participate. He has to go out and speak. God's already working in salvation for them. You can take a look at this passage later. Acts 4, 23 through 30. But what happens here? Herod and Pilate get together and conspire to kill Jesus Christ. And so we, we see them planning, we see them plotting. There's people moving all around the town. They've got late night meetings where they've got their constituents in and that sort of thing going on. And then we find out that that's what they were predestined to do. Now, a lot of people don't like that word, okay? And I, I can see where it can be difficult, but it's there and we have to deal it deal with it. So they're predestined to do what they did, but they are held accountable for their actions. So they're held accountable for their actions while they're working out God's sovereign plan. Two leaders making their own decisions, being responsible while doing exactly what God intended for them to do. The first time I heard the gospel, uh, I was... 28 years old, 
I was down in Florida. I moved down there. Um, I got to Florida by making a series of really bad decisions. Really life-devastatingly bad decisions. And I ended up in Florida. Um, and I had a roommate. It was reprobate. Um, getting him out of jail all the time. And we're standing in a pool in the apartment complex where we live. And he shares the gospel with me. Now, I never heard it laid out quite like that before. And all I could remember thinking was, you are sharing the gospel with me. you got to be kidding me. Okay, you want me to listen to how I should run my life because yours is not doing so well. That's what I'm thinking, okay? Um, and, and it didn't hit me, but, you know, that, that led to, uh, I, you know, not, I, not all the Florida experience was bad. I met my bride there, okay? But that led to me moving up here and led to me sitting in a pew in a church in Franconia, Virginia, and bowing my head and asking the Lord to be the Lord over my life. I look at that and I go, oh, oh, that's when I made my decision. Okay, but, at, you know, the, the more I looked at the Bible and saw these, these tensions growing, the more I look back and go, but everything that had to happen in my life to put me in that swimming pool in Florida. And I realized that God had been working in my life long before that moment in that pew in Franconia. And, and I went, oh my gosh, when did I get saved? Ah, uh, I don't know. I can tell you when I was aware of my salvation. Uh, some of us have that moment, don't we? Some of us have been aware of our salvation all our lives. It's okay. It's okay. The fact that you're aware is the crucial point, not when you became aware. Because I've got to tell you something, God's been working in all our lives for a long, long time, longer than we've been aware so God used all those bad decisions to work something wonderful in my life. This is what happens here. And we see it over and over again in Scripture. So there's, there's our two biblical truths. God is completely sovereign, and human beings are totally responsible for their decisions. So how do we answer that question? Is God sovereign, or do we have free will? i got to tell you something. The answer is yes! It's yes. Both of them are true. Okay, well, what do I do with that? How do I process that? Here's four things we need to be thinking about. Number one, the first thing. We need to avoid thinking that these two things are mutually exclusive. Yeah, our minds tell us they have to be. But this is not what Scripture's telling us. We need to realize that our faith is not based on nonsense. But our faith can sometimes be mysterious. We understand a lot about God. There are some things in Scripture that are very clear. You reject Jesus Christ, you burn in hell forever. But there are aspects and attributes of God that we just don't get. They are unfathomable. And this is one of them. The tension between free will and God's sovereign election is something that we don't get. But we have to avoid thinking, I've got to land somewhere on this, and wherever I land on it, the other one's wrong. That's how we end up with those different denominations and tensions and arguments and Bible studies and that knot you get in the stomach when the pastor starts talking about the part that you don't accept. Number two, we need to rethink freedom. You know, we think freedom is our capability to determine our own fate. We need to understand that God gives us free will, but it will never act contrary to God's will. It will always be harmonious to what God's plan is. Now, if we think about that, if we understand that, we just saw it in Scripture. Again, go back and study these things. You know, there should be some freedom in that because that means that you can't mess things up. You can't sit there and go, oh, gee, I I was trying to witness to that person. I forgot the third spiritual law, and now they're not saved. And it's my fault. It's not your fault. You can't get off track from where God wants you to be. You may be in an uncomfortable situation. Things may not be going the way you thought they would go. But let me tell you something. If God is truly sovereign, you are on track. 
He might be teaching you something you didn't anticipate that you had to learn. But if God is truly sovereign, watch this, you can never, ever be in the wrong place. You might not be in a place that you're going to enjoy what happens to you, but it can't be the wrong place. Our lives would be so much easier if we would spend more time working on what God is trying to teach us than trying to get out of our situation. So if you're in a tough situation, God's got you there for a reason. He's trying to show you something. God's not sitting in heaven going, I wish they wouldn't have turned in that direction. I had a great plan for them, and now it's all messed up. Angels, let's go fix everything here. We've got to get things back on track. It just doesn't happen that way. Number three, we have to be very cautious in the way we associate God with good and evil. Some think God is never associated with evil. We've got to be very careful with that uh, because that puts us in a situation that the things that appear evil to us have to work outside of his authority, okay? When we think that God can never associate with evil, this thing over here is pure evil. God's not associated with that, and that means it's operating outside of his sovereign authority. Now God's not really sovereign. So we, we, got, we can't allow ourselves to go down that path. I've had people tell me, God cannot be in the presence of evil. That's not what Scripture says. Take a look at Job chapter 1 sometime. Nothing happens outside of his authority or outside of his purview. Now, some other people think that God stands behind good and evil in the same way. Well, that's not true either. God's, God doesn't see both of them the same way. He doesn't interact with good and evil the same way. If, if he did, that would kind of make him amoral. I mean, lacking integrity, lacking any sense of value. It's just God who's just sovereign over everything or so. So we, Scripture tells us that God is, is indelibly good, that he is pure. God says he is good. He never says he's evil. We don't have an amoral God. So here's how this works. And again, this, this is going to bend your mind if you think about it. But God stands behind good in such a way that everything good that happens, he gets credit for. He stands behind evil in such a way that everything that evil happens is credited to those who oppose him. Again, this is what scripture shows us. We have no idea. We have no idea how the nuts and bolts of that work. We, we have no idea how all of that comes together. But i got to tell you something. We're not the first ones to wrestle with this. Job wrestled with it for 42 chapters. Habakkuk wrestles with it. A number of the psalmists wrestle with it. So, if we understand those three things, that should lead us to a fourth thing that will help us to bring all this together. Okay? Number four, we have to concede that God is transcendent. God is above our reason. God is beyond our understanding at times. God is at times unfathomable. He is so big, so awesome, so sovereign, so holy, so pure, so good that we can't get a grip around it. And at the same time, God is intimately personal. He touches our hearts. He forms us in the womb. He is our loving Father. He is our gracious Savior. He is our wise teacher. He is transcendent above all things, and He is in us, touching us to our very core. So how does this thought of election impact our lives? Well, again, if we go back to Scripture, put our preconceptions aside. Election, listen, election is always presented as an honor and a blessing. We are chosen by God. I get a kick out of this because there was a time in my life when I absolutely rejected election. I, you know what? I'm the one who decides where I go. I'm not chosen. I decided. When I was a kid in grade school, at recess time, what is the most devastating thing that can happen to you at recess when they're choosing up sides for baseball? 
you don't get chosen. You're the last one. You're like, oh my gosh. Yeah, I'm sorry, John, you can't play. That's an odd man out. You know, why don't you just go sit down where you always sit and just leave us alone. And so we're absolutely devastated when we're young, when we're not chosen. Yet something happens to us. We get older. We get a little theologically astute. And all of a sudden, we don't want to be chosen. You know, we had it right when we were kids. The greatest blessing of inclusion and acceptance is to be chosen. And we rebel against it because we have an inner desire to be self-determined. And I want to tell you something. The, the amount of anger and anguish that you express over being chosen election will be the measure of your desire to be self-determined. That's how it worked for me. I realized that I wanted to be in control. So, if, when we look at election, we see the blessing of God. We see the honoring of God. We see the glory of God rising up with us. Believers are always chosen. That means they can't mess things up and they can't lose it, okay? Because God does it. So, how does human responsibility impact our lives? Because we've seen that just as strongly presented. Okay, you know what? It should keep us on our toes. It should cause us to walk carefully, we're responsible for what we, de- what we decide. We're responsible for what we do. We, it, this should keep us striving for holiness, to understand that while we can't lose our salvation, there can be consequences for ungodly behavior. We can remove ourselves from God's provision and protection by acting against Him, by acting against His sovereign election. So it should drive us to our Bibles to understand who God is and how he functions and how we're supposed to walk. This is what the book of Ephesians is all about. You put both of these things together, sovereign election and human responsibility, and you ponder them, and if you will ponder them objectively, Let me tell you something. It will drive you to your knees. You will go down on your face and go, I have spoken of things too wonderful for me to understand. You will get a glimpse of the glory of God. It's beyond our comprehension. It's beyond our understanding. It does not match with our reason, but it is what God says about himself. And God says that all creation speaks of his glory, including this issue right here. And he's given us this book of Ephesians. You know, he speaks, Paul speaks of it in Romans. Let me just share this with you. Because I know, I know, I know how people react to this. I don't like this. I don't understand that. I don't agree with this. Paul lays all this out in Romans 7 and 8. And in, verse, in chapter 9, he says this. Starting with verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will not say to me then, why Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? which he has prepared beforehand for glory. In two weeks, we'll see how Paul prays these concepts into the Ephesian church. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Uh, 
We thank you that these are hard things, Lord, but we thank you that these are rich things, Lord, that there are things meant for our edification, for our nourishment. And we thank you, Father, that we can even begin to grasp these things, that they strike our hearts, that they sit there in our minds, Father, that we ponder them, we roll over them, uh, Father, and that all that is made possible by the sacrifice your Son made on the cross. Let us not lose sight of that, Father. It's not necessarily the nuts and bolts of how we get there, but how your Son has saved us. So may we ever... Keep our focus, Father, on the glory of Calvary. In Jesus' name.